Greetings, adventurers, and welcome to another episode of Vitamin D&D, your weekly dose of Dungeons & Dragons, just what the DM ordered. I'm your host, Patrick, and here with me today, as always, is my fellow co-host and party member, Brady. Hello. Hello. We're feeling a little silly tonight. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, disclaimer. I'm going to go ahead and say disclaimer. disclaimer. Patrick thinks that what I'm going to talk about doesn't have anything to do no, with what we're talking not, about. It's not so. true. It's very important to to the history. And speaking of, yeah, what we're talking about tonight is the history of Dungeons and Dragons. So mm-hmm. not going to be talking about rules tonight. Just going to be going over, you know, where the rules how, came how it all from. Started. Who, who made where, the rules? How did we get here? How did how did any who of us are get here? we? <laughs> um. <laughs> How did we get here? It's like uh, beginning of red versus blue. <laughs> what, what do you mean here in this canyon? Um, all right. No, what's what? But yeah, history, Dungeons history, and Dragons. Yeah. All right. Gonna so, throw around a name you've probably heard before, maybe one or two you haven't heard before. So yeah, Brady's gonna uh, really work on his German, his Deutsch. Yeah, I included all this just so I could say this one guy's name. That's true. The, Not really. He's all this history it, at the front part is just because Brady wanted to say one German name. Yeah. I already included one German name in here for him, and he wanted more. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. Um, Although they do have like one or two of the same. <laughs> all right. Uh, so get us kicking off. Uh, before the genre we know and love as tabletop role-playing games came to life, War Games was the tr- strategic game to play. That's right. So here we go, real quick. Quick history of wargaming. Uh, it didn't really start off as just a game. It was more of an actual way to simulate either upcoming battles or a way to study uh, historic battles. Uh, and this kind of goes all the way back as far as the Roman Empire, where commanders used to use what they were called sand tables with abstract icons to represent soldiers and units in battle. So basically they had a table set up and they had either loose sand or loose dirt or things like that. And they could pile it up to recreate terrain that either they were going to fight at or they had fought at and were going to evaluate a battle. So this just allowed them to get a better grasp of the situation and the terrain and everything. And these, the little miniatures helped them just have a visual representation of where everything was going. Uh, and then this also evolved into the uh, the commanders and the leaders actually being able to, in their spare time, compete against each other and, you know, with their formations and try to outmaneuver people in each other. Uh, and it came as a, a way for them to just brush up on their tactical skills. So that sort of went forward from there, um, had a few evolutions, but basically stayed the same. And it was more just a way to brush upon their skills. But um, the sand tables led to miniature gaming developing not only as a military tool, but as entertainment as well. So in 1664, Christopher Weichmann created this thing called Königspiel, Spiel. sorry for all our German listeners, Königspiel, uh, which was one of the earliest board games meant primarily for developing and communicating strategies of warfare. But um, it kind of developed into more of an actual, what we would think of as a game, where it had a little bit more kind of loose rules and things like that. Uh, but then in Prussia in 1780, uh, Johann Christian 
sorry, Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig um, created this game that was called War Chest. And it was the first game that was really created not only as a training training tool for future military leaders, but also as a recreational game. So this is where we start getting into where it branches apart from just being a tool for training military leaders and actually becomes something that is meant for like the general public or people who are interested in it to play. So from there, uh, we get a guy in another Prussian guy. Uh, he was a army officer and this is one of the names I wanted to say. His name was George Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Riesfitz. So he also, uh, he presented to the Prussian general staff, a highly realistic war game that he and his father had developed over the years. But instead of like a chess grid, like you would think of, this game was played um, on accurate paper maps. So it was actually a little bit more geared towards the training side, but still had the potential for uh, playing a game. And then we get some people over in the UK. Um, his name was Fred Jane, and he pioneered a series of reference books on military weapons data and he actually created this thing called Naval War Game in 1903, and it, again, was a military tool, and then um, people started playing it as a game as well, and it just kind of went from there and got a little bit more in-depth, and people started taking it more recreationally. But then there were also some um, some paper and wood board games from Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, like, there was this thing in Japan called, I'm just going to take a shot here, we high around 3000 BC. And it was a term that meant encirclement. And, um, this was a predecessor to the modern go, um, which became, uh, kind of popular around, uh, 2300 BC. But then there was also another one that branches into something that we're more familiar with, but it was called the Chat Chaturanga, Chaturanga, um, pardon my pronunciation, but emerged in India in 500 BC. And it had a gridded board and pieces that re represented the leaders and warriors on a battlefield. And this was the clear predecessor to modern chess. So that's where you kind of get these. That one's a little bit more, I guess you could say, ma mainstream. But um, so we get those, you know, it goes into 1915s and things kind of died down a little bit because of the war. But then after the war, you start getting all this post-war stuff. And in the 1950s, there were a couple of dang war. <laughs> yeah, ding dang war. Uh, but in the 1950s, you get a couple of independent inventors introducing more paper board game, uh, war war games uh, with um, made out of cardboard and kind of what you would think of, you know, in like a box set type of thing. So there was the Rand Corporation and they created a system to present like theater level warfare in a form that allowed for more like accurate ways of doing it rather than just the sand tables. Um, and then at the same time, there's this guy called Charles Roberts who was in the army and he was awaiting a commission, but he created this own thing like with his own tools and stuff and its own tactical skills. And he named it appropriately enough tactics. And, um, it, it used many of the same, um, techniques created by the Rand corporation. But, um, so it went on from there and, um, they may have just been considered a tool for military planning and training. However, Roberts used his creation to create the commercial entertainment company Avalon Hill in 1958, which is today part of the Hasbro company. And he kind of helped popularize wargaming as a hobby and a form of entertainment for those interested in like 
try on their hand as military leaders or wanting to try out tactics. So these games attracted a significant following of people who were like well-educated and, you know, just kind of people had a little bit more time on their hands and wanted to do a little bit more than just, you know, chess or, you know, wanted some more complex uh, things to get their hands on. And uh, that's kind of where the the wargaming hobbyists of the 60s and 70s came from. Right. And so that was that. Sorry, but we <laughs> had to get there to get to here. Are you done? <laughs> that only I'm done. Did, that, that didn't take very long. That was good. Should talk to uh, Dan Carlin see if uh, he wants you to do some hardcore history uh, oh. on uh, on war gaming for him. Could, I'll, I'll get in touch with him. You could probably nerd out about war gaming for a four hour episode. Hey, who knows? I may just come up with another small podcast of just the history of board mm. games and war gaming. You heard it here first, folks. Stay that's tuned. right. But that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. All right. So, as Brady said, some of those, uh, you know, wargaming hobbyists uh, throughout the world, some of them were a group of Americans that cropped up in Wisconsin. Right. Ah, and gee. they, uh, oh, geez. And they would develop their own rules based on a war game called Siege of Badenburg. Um, and dun, a man dun, by dun. the name, very good. And a man by the name of Jeff Perrin developed his own medieval rules based off the game. So the game was just a historical, um, like battle war game. And so he came up with his own rules that kind of gave it a medieval flavor. Um, and he shared those with a man named Gary Gygax. Um, the name that you've all probably heard of. I think we've mentioned before, um, maybe mm-hmm. once or twice. But uh, this man is most widely, um, I guess, regarded as the father of Dungeons and Dragons. But one of the men that uh, I'll name in just a minute is, I'd say, maybe the actual you know, first dungeon master, the first creator of the... Um, you know, of the tabletop role-playing game. Uh, but we'll get into that. And uh, Yeah, it was a lot of back and forth. Yeah, uh, and don't worry. If you thought there was drama in the whole Facebook uh, thing, it's, you know, it's just the same with uh, with these guys. Gary Gygax pulled a regular old uh, Mark Zuckerberg on, womp, womp. Uh, <laughs> on these guys. But, so uh, let's see. Like I said, Jeff Perrin developed his own rules um, and shared them with Gary Gygax um, and Gygax then expanded on that rule set. Um, cause Gary was a smart dude. He already had, you know, he had a huge community, um, of fellow war gamers in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Um, and they, you know, came up with different rules for their own games. So this was nothing new to him. So he came up with a rule set, which included a fantasy supplement, um, to this, this game and, it was published as the as the game Chainmail. Okay, um, around the same time um, in Minnesota, so not very far away, just one state over, uh, a man by the name of Dave Wesley and another man by the name of Dave Arneson began playing a medieval version of a war game that used Gygax's rules. Uh, f- or sorry, um, a medieval game of a uh, a war game that Dave Wesley had come up with. Um, and they used Gygax's rules for chainmail um, for their combat, um, kind of to resolve um, the way combat went about. Um, the big difference from previous war games in in their 
their game was that you controlled individual characters instead of like Brady said, whole armies or even, you know, maybe just platoons. You actually just controlled one individual character. Um, and they even added innovations such as character classes um, and even level advancement and armor class and even included a, a referee of sorts that would make decisions on rules and also guide the adventure along, you know, so the original dungeon master. The um, humble origins of the dungeon master. Mm, yes. And uh, Dave Arneson introduced Gygax um, to this new game because uh, he had met him at an event called Gen Con or Geneva Convention um, that Gygax had come up with. Uh, and at that, you know, at the, this time, Gen Con is still a thing. It usually attracts, I think, about uh, 60,000 people every year. So uh, no small thing. Um, I think I tell that in Indianapolis, Indiana nowadays, but at that time it probably drew a little over, a little under 200 people to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And that's where Dave Arneson had met Gygax. So the story goes that Dave drove through a snowstorm, um, to introduce Gygax to this game that he had come up with and he had been playing for several months, um, maybe even uh, a year or two with his friends out in uh, St. Paul uh, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so he drove and met with Gygax in 1972, um, and they played a game called Blackmore, um, which was a fantasy version um, of those war games, like I said, using chainmail to resolve combat. And uh, he and Gary Gygax began working on the rule set for that game, kind of Gary fine-tuning those rules, making it better. Um, and that would become kind of the first version of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, and I, th I think another kind of notable thing about it too is this Blackmore setting. It, it kind of started branching off a little bit more and making its own thing because, as Patrick was saying, it was this different rule set, but it was also a completely made-up campaign setting, as we would call right. it. It was a fantasy setting, and you know they say that they they drew inspiration from you know like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. So this is kind of where it really starts getting into like the actual fantasy settings where we think of because later they actually uh, sent out uh, another um, not a compendium but like a, an expansion, I guess you could say, and it was called the fantasy setting. So hmm. um, yeah, the fantasy campaign. Sorry, that that's what it was. The first fantasy campaign. Uh, came out a little bit later, but this is where it starts becoming like its own thing and not just these, you know, these war gamers recreating medieval battles or, you know, all these other Napoleonic war things. This is where it starts branching into like its own territory and becoming its own thing. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, reading, reading on, uh, online, you can see that, uh, you know, Gary and Gygax and all those other war gamers drew, like Brady said, a lot of inspiration from um, fantasy writers like Tolkien um, and you know, many others. Uh, even uh, what is it, the the tale of the Jabberwocky? Um, whenever they came up with like Vorpal blades and things like that, um, so they they you know borrowed bits and pieces from you know, what they were into those fantasy novels, you know, the, the worlds that they wanted to go into. Uh, and that's what they, you know, populated their world with, um, which I think 
like uh, like you've mentioned before, Brady got them in trouble with the uh, the Tolkien uh, estate at one point. They had hey. to uh, a little bit, a little bit of backpedaling, and stop calling them hobbits and uh, I think treants. Yeah, uh, or no, ints was yep. uh, the Tolkien name, and I think as well as the uh, the Balrog. Um, so they mm-hmm. had to had to change up the names. Uh, I think the Tolkien estate even tried to get them. Tried to say that uh, dragon and elf were theirs too, and everybody's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, guys!" Yeah, it was like, "Nah, fam, no, no, no." We elves have been around, dragons have been around. Okay, come on, you don't own dragons. You, how, how, or do they? <laughs> you don't own elves. How can you own elves? Um, so they uh, had to change the names, and that's how we got halflings and treants, and I think balors um, are the equivalent. Uh, for Balrogs in uh, from the the Tolkien world, so um, in 1973, uh, Gygax and a few of those other guys um, came up with or founded the Tactical Studies Rules or TSR uh, to publish the first Dungeons and Dragons. So the very first publication rule set um, to go out into the world um, and not just be kind of written about in the little mat in the magazines and other publications that they were a part of. Um, and Dave and uh, Arneson was appointed as the creative director um, since he, you know, it's a good appropriate place for him. He had been kind of a, the beautiful mind to come up with this thing. So in 1974, the original Dungeons and Dragons, not now called nowadays called the OD&D, uh, was published as a three booklet box set. Um, and with only a $2,000 budget, um, with $100 of that being spent on art- artwork, it was um, seen as being pretty amateuristic, very simplistic in production, and assumed that players were already familiar with wargaming. Um, so pretty kind of inclusive there. Um, yeah, and if you ever want to have a good chuckle, um, just go and Google the differences between the first artwork depictions of... Um, your basic like Dungeons and Dragons um, creatures and stuff like that. And then what they look like now, those like the renderings and depictions of them. Hmm. There's some pretty, uh, some pretty drastic changes. And that just goes to illustrate uh, that hundred dollar um, set for their, for their money uh, for what they were having to do their artwork with. It's, it's not very flattering. It's pretty, but it's pretty funny though. <laughs> yeah. hundred dollars didn't even go all that far back in 74. Um, so, uh, even, you know, even though the, uh, first Dungeons and Dragons, the original was pretty inclusive to, you know, war gamers and appealed mostly to them. It did grow in popularity over the next few years, um, with several supplements to the original Dungeons and Dragons being released in 1975. Um, then in 1977, uh, TSR started using, um, what would kind of be the uh, the trend for a few years, um, or I guess a couple, you know, a decade. Uh, and that was a, a two-pronged strategy where they would publish a Dungeons & Dragons basic set, so kind of a basic version, which was a cleaned-up presentation of the essential rules for beginners and the advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which I think is much more widely known, um, as, you know, kind of being, you know, much more popular. Uh, and that was a more complex rule set for experienced players. And unfortunately, these two rule sets, to make matters even worse, contradicted each other 
um, you know, some using different rules, even just, you know, saying that different rules didn't apply to, you know, you had to completely learn a whole new rule set from one to the other. Um, and during that same time, the original Dungeons and Dragons was still being published until 1979. So um, a lot of confusion there and kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like in that situation, you're uh, trying to appeal to two crowds, whereas, you know, later on we find out and we, you know, we see that they just start going with one edition that was you know, trimmed down and meant for everybody. Um, let's see. In the 1980s, the second edition of the basic and advanced sets were published, um, and along with a bunch of other supplemental um, you know, even revisions upon revisions upon revisions. So it's a whole lot of, whole lot of Dungeons and Dragons going on, um, around that time. And so just really complicating things. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they bounced around and did so many different additions and revisions and more additions and then making these couple of core rule books but they're all different but they're all the same game but they're just more in depth and um and you know it, it honestly kind of reminds me of how um with blackmore how i guess you could say Dun- dungeons and dragons came to be it was kind of this iteration on things because like even though um his name just left me what was uh, arneson yeah. even though arneson was kind of like one of the big proponents it was because, as we said, these wargaming sessions and stuff, Arneson was coming up with his own things and he was using his own settings and basing them on Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Yeah. But he was using fantasy supplements, supplemental rules from Chainmail, which was developed by Gygax. So it was something that Gygax came up with and then that he took and iterated on more and expanded on and then came back to Gygax and like presented him with this stuff. And then they came back together and made Dungeons and Dragons. And it's, it's like, it's all the same thing and it's all going in the same direction, but it just kind of like interweaves. And I don't know, it's just a lot of can be very confusing. Yeah. And I think it's cool um, to think about, you know, even back then in the seventies, you know, with, we didn't have nearly the same level of connection with the rest of the world, as far as, you know, with the internet and with, uh, that instantaneous connection. Um, just pretty cool story about how like-minded people kind of got together and realized that like, okay, like I'm, you know, this guy came up with a cool new rule set. Let's use it. Like, let's come up with a cool fantasy version of the game. Um, and then, you know, just building upon each other. Um, and in our part, part two, I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, kind of Dave Arneson, a little bit more, because uh, what his he was, I mean, pretty much the original dungeon master, um, and he, like I said, came and played that first game of Blackmore with with Gygax and a bunch of friends, and they were just kind of blown away by just how immersive and how fun it was, and played you know into the night, you know, classic Dungeons and Dragons session. Um, so he was, um, unfortunately. Um, you know, you'll find out a little bit swept under the rug uh, by by time, but uh, I think he he deserves a lot more credit for uh, for Dungeons and Dragons than he gets. Yeah, I I would agree, um, but also I think it's also neat talking about that how it was kind of like a 
oh, the word just left me. Collaboration. Mm-hmm. How it was kind of a collaboration because it was talking about in these Blackmore games, um, there were a lot of these other Napoleonic war gamers that came in and were yeah. joining this other society and they were all taking part in it. But when they started playing Blackmore more often, the the players that were coming in as they evolved, they started like one guy started playing as the pre the town priest uh, who became the bishop, and one guy was like, um, there were these set up on the good and bad sides. So like the good sides had the priest, um, and um, like the town elder, and um, stuff like that. And then there was like the bad guy side that was. One guy was a wizard, and he was like the the evil wizard, and stuff like that. But like, just how it naturally through the collaboration and playing, like it just became and helped inspire what we take for granted as the class system and stuff like that. I don't know. I just like you're saying without that instant, you know, communication stuff and just people getting together and having fun, it led to millions and billions of other people being able to have fun and i don't know it's just really cool it's just a really yeah. neat story you know yeah it's amazing that we got here yeah. um and it's you know it could have just you know if gygax and arneson had not talked to each other it may have just you know kind of you know you know, may have, it faded, may have never faded been, away into some yeah, other kind of board game to anything yeah and we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it yeah we wouldn't be talking to you fine fine people, fine folk. Um, but unfortunately, as it pop, as its popularity grew, as we'll find out in part two, it became connected with a moral panic that was sweeping the nation. Yes, it became um, unintentionally associated with some uh, dark and nefarious forces, not of any... Uh, didn't mean to do it on its own, you know, it just kind of happened that way because it dealt with things that not many people deal with. Yeah, and, you the know, 80s, it was a fantasy setting and stuff. 80s and 90s had a lot of other stuff going on, and they just weren't ready for anything as innovative as Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons. Yeah, that's true. There was a lot of stuff. I mean, the 80s were just a crazy time in general, let's be real. Yeah. You know, just... So, yeah, they. I just don't think they were ready, but... <laughs> And it, it doesn't help whenever you draw the ire of a certain group of, of people and things and it just blows up and we'll we'll go into that more, but um it's it's crazy stuff. It's one of those kind of like Salem witch trial things that turns yeah. turns um what is it, uh don't make a mountain into a molehill. So they made a mountain out of a molehill. It was yeah. pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Yeah. All right. Well, Patrick, you got anything else? No, um, that that's it. I'm excited for part two. Now we're gonna get yeah. into all the. I'm gonna we're gonna talk about the drama. I'm gonna talk yeah. about the, um, you know, crazy uh, bad reputation that Dungeons and Dragons got. And then, we'll just uh, say it the the satanic panic. Satanic you probably panic. Know, already know what we're talking about, <laughs> but uh, we will go in more depth about that. But then we'll also just talk about more of the cultural impact that it's had. Yeah, and, like the modern. The modern uh, impact that uh, Dungeons and Dragons has had, which has been cool, yeah. it's been great. Yeah, it's 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 had a really a big full re- reversal and a revival yeah. and a renaissance, which big is positive cool. positive influence. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. But um, 
we'll we'll like Patrick said, we'll go into that in a part two. But do you, do you have anything else, Pat? Nope, I think that's it. Um, and and Brady, I, I'm I'm sorry. I really enjoyed the wargaming part. I, it makes me want to read up on wargaming. I'm gonna. I know, and I was speeding through it. Um, well, you know what? Let's just re-record, and I'll spend okay. thirty minutes just talking about that. Yeah, can you talk about it longer? Yeah, yeah, I can. Awesome. I sped through it. No, <laughs> but for real, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting stuff. You get down a rabbit hole. Like I said, I might honestly make just a like separate segment not related to this in like wargaming stuff. But yeah. anyways, that's that's going to be it for today's episode on D and D: A History Part One. Uh, just talking about the humble beginnings and where it came from. So thank you for listening, and we hope that you've enjoyed and found it informative and fun. Let us know if you have any questions or something that you'd like to hear about in a future episode by emailing us at the vitamin D and D podcast at gmail.com. That's the vitamin D, the letter N D podcast at gmail.com uh, or on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just uh, search up vitamin D and D podcast and we we'll, should pop right up there. Or you can check out our website at the vitamin D and D podcast wordpress.com. Uh, or again, if you just Google the vitamin D and D podcast, and uh, it should pop right up there. And uh, if you don't mind, don't forget to tell your friends and spread the word about this show. Uh, hopefully, if you've liked it, you've been telling other people to listen to it and check it out or trying to get more people involved uh, and get to play with you so you're not having to kind of sit there and wait for somebody to be the DM. But uh, hopefully, you've been able to share it with people. But keep an eye and an ear out for our next episode where we will be talking about D&D History Part 2 where we'll go into a little bit more of the satanic panic and uh, just more of the cultural impacts and a little bit of the drama of the, uh, the creation of it. Uh, but other than that, take it easy, and we'll see you after your long rest. <laughs>